Welcome to another episode of the Student Stock Security Podcast. I am Pranav Guntapalli, a sophomore math and economics major and a Notre Dame International Security Center undergraduate fellow. Today, it is my distinct honor to welcome Ambassador Nancy Jo Powell, one of the most distinguished diplomats in modern American history. Ambassador Powell joined the Foreign Service in 1977 and served with distinction for over 37 years, including assignments as a U.S. Ambassador to Uganda, U.S. Ambassador to Ghana, U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan, U.S. Ambassador to Nepal, and the first, US ambas- first female U.S. Ambassador to India. In 2006, Ambassador Powell received one of the U.S. government's most prestigious awards, the Homeland Security Service to America Award, for her work as the State Department's Senior Coordinator on the Avian and Influenza Epidemics. Ambassador Powell holds the rank of Career Ambassador, the highest rank in the U.S. Foreign Service. Ambassador Powell, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I was, I was, I want to start by giving our listeners a chance to get to know you and learn about your exciting life story. You started your career as a high school social studies teacher in Iowa. What drew you to teaching? I think I, from the day I walked into the school as a kindergartner, I loved school. Um, And I was looking for ways to stay in that environment. I also, as I've reflected on this, I think that probably at the time I was going to school in the 50s, These were role models for women. My elementary teachers were all women. They were all professionals. They had families as, most of them had families as well. But I think that was probably an unconscious element of it. And I also grew up half of my childhood in the the home of the, what was then the Iowa State Teachers College, which is now the University of Northern Iowa. But Iowa put an enormous amount of emphasis on training teachers. And I was surrounded by people that were either teachers are being trained as teachers. And I wonder, how did your background as an educator shape her diplomatic outreach in countries like India and Pakistan, where studying in the U.S. is an aspiration for many young people? With the exception of Canada, which was my first post, um, I joined the Foreign Service and went all the way to Ottawa. Um, most of my posts in American education was the dream come true for the vast majority of young people that wanted to go to university. But it also was very important as a tool in our kit. And I I keep saying that it was one of our stealth weapons, uh, particularly in the subcontinent, that it brought on the American campuses, Pakistani and Indian students could come together. They quite often had more in common with their fellow South Asians than they did perhaps with their American um, students. And they also, I, I used to laugh, they used to find the auntie that could make the best curry and they would all go there on Sunday night for supper. And those ties, when I first started going to the subcontinent, disappeared because of difficulties in, in communicating across the border, difficulties with the intelligence services if you were talking to people in the other country. But those have disappeared, particularly with social media and with the still difficult but not impossible links that you can fly to between the two countries. People are going to weddings. I think there are probably some e-commerce joint ventures that we don't know about. But we also, particularly in Pakistan, had programs that provided master's degrees in government administration and public administration and economics and development work that shaped a whole generation of public officials in Pakistan, and many of them were senior officials by the time I went back as ambassador. And I used to say I thought I could pick them out 
as we sat around the table and tried to do planning, uh, there was a mindset that had been influenced by their education in America. And I think that's true. And we have also now in India, I was very supportive of the new private schools that were being developed on American models. And some of them had direct links to Wharton Business School, to others, but they were modeled on the semester system. They were modeled on the the American uh, version of testing and and exchange of students with the students much more involved than being lectured at. And so all of those things were important, I think, and not necessarily visible, but they're part of the toolkit. My close friend here in Notre Dame is Pakistani, and I think I have an invite to her wedding in Lahore, so I can like see that <laughs> in effect. Um, you joined the Foreign Service when the State Department was still fairly male-dominated. You were one of five women in your class. You recounted in another interview that on your first day on the job, your superior made a sexist joke. How was the experience of being a female diplomat, not just back home, but also in the subcontinent where women face sexism and frequent harassment? I came into the Foreign Service at a time of great change. They were in not only doing diversity with gender, with race, but also with geographic diversity. I used to say that I thought I perhaps faced more prejudice as an Iowan than I did as a woman. There weren't a lot of people from Iowa in the Foreign Service. The ones that were there had done quite well, but we were a minority. I had women role models that were ahead of me that were crashing the, the glass ceilings for Foreign Service officers. There were already women ambassadors. Not too long after I joined the first assistant female assistant secretary, Roz Ridgeway, came into office. But those were major, and it took a, a series of lawsuits filed by women to establish the discriminatory practices that, that existed. There's still groups at state. Um, they, there's a group called Women at State. There are a couple others that look at these issues also at minorities. But the effort has been to try to make the State Department, particularly the Foreign Service, look more like America. And that effort continues. It's not always easy to recruit and retain the, the minorities because they're they're sought after and we're looking for the best of the best. So that's still a problem. Overseas, the more senior I got, the less of a problem it became. Part of that was a, as those countries matured as well. Part of it was we have an American, a senior American official, the number two or the number one. She's just a senior American official. We're not going to, I used to say maybe I was, I had gender neutrality or something that I wasn't Miss Powell, I was Ambassador Powell. And that made a huge difference. It put some pressure on me to make sure that the women in my embassy were be, being treated well. This was a place where South Asians have done very, very well in the Foreign Service. And they're uh, quite often sent to South Asia because of their language abilities and their interest in, in that part of the world. But they look like everybody else in the country. And sometimes, you know, they're used to being treated in America as equals. Uh, and there are practices in some parts of South Asia that they find very, very difficult to, because they're subjected to it. And, uh, you know, you have to do some counseling, you have to work with them and, and try to change uh, attitudes. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that the title of a book about U.S.-India relations should be Great Expectations. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Uh, I think both countries have always expected more out of the relationships than, than perhaps either side was willing to deliver. 
or able and sometimes able to deliver. There is a public and a government perception that we're two democracies, the oldest democracy and the biggest democracy, and that we should really be able to work much more closely together on a wide range of policies. And particularly during the Cold War, that just wasn't happening. We had two very, very different perceptions of where we thought the other country should be. I think we're meeting some of those expectations now. Perhaps they've been uh, made more realistic. But our cooperation is, compared to 15, 20 years ago, is just incredibly more complicated, more complex, and, and much, much expanded. So those great expectations perhaps uh, are coming true. But um, when you have expectations and they're not met, they can also create a sort of a sour taste. And that pervaded some of the relations over the years, particularly in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And that began to disappear in the 90s and, and since then. I think that's a more structural history. But as I prepared for this interview, I asked my dad for question ideas. My dad grew up in India. And he wanted me to ask you why the U.S. has ignored India for so long. <laughs> and as someone who's lived in the U.S. and read American side, American officials and students alike view India as prickly and moralistic. There's a history of the Eisenhower administration really having a distaste for Indian diplomat Krishna Menon. And this is uh, throughout the history, there have been these tensions. And this mutual coldness of attitude has really colored the history of US-India relations. I wonder if that is a consequence of sour relations between government officials in both countries. Could you expand on how the people-to-people -people relations and the diplomatic interactions shaped this bilateral relationship? I think there may be an element of that. It doesn't explain the whole thing. More of it is about the differences of opinion on whether the non-aligned uh, position of India was uh, realistic. And it certainly wasn't welcomed by the United States by any stretch of the imagination, and particularly as it moved closer to the Soviet Union over time. There were some individuals on both sides that could be described prickly would probably be the diplomatic word for it. <laughs> they, they made life difficult for the, the diplomats of the other side. They would occasionally you know, just completely squash some initiative that was being undertaken. I can recount a, a counter to that. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit in the Oval Office with Prime Minister Singh and President Obama, and it was quite clear that it was the, the mutual respect was incredible. The warmth of their intellect, their ability to exchange. It was Prime Minister Singh's last visit to the White House, and it was just an a, a big counter to that argument of how important it can be. Certainly the, the personal relationships help, um, but it also boils down to what's in the national interest in a, in a much bigger way. Prime Minister Nehru, during the invasion from China, realized that he needed to have America. And while he might have had some prickly diplomats on his side and some concerns on his own policies, um, he reached out. And he found a, a response. And so I think the exigencies of the situation, the, the policy parameters that are, both countries are pursuing, but there are certainly instances where a warm personal relationship can open doors that perhaps it's not the, the main door that you were, but you go to the side door and maybe you come in from the back. And those things are, are important. It's harder in both Washington and New Delhi because the governments are so large. I didn't see Prime Minister Singh all that often unless I had visitors. Uh, occasionally, if I had 
business. I saw President Musharraf more often in Pakistan. We had more to talk about in, in some or more immediate things to talk about in some ways. So those relationships were important, but it, it was because of the business I was conducting it. Nobody on either my side or their side had real time to go into the fat a lot. That's one of the things that I'm trying to learn is to develop good relations with people from different countries. But it's always the structural factors seem yeah. to be the most important ones. And that's something that... And one of the ways, starting in, in the 1980s, greatly expanded in the 1990s and the early 2000s were, let's look at other places we can cooperate. Initially, it was culture. The New York Symphony went with Zubin Mehta, went to India and performed. The Smithsonian hosted an enormous ex exhibition for the Folklife Festival of artisans from India, folk artisans from India in the 80s. In the 80s and 90s, we expanded into science, both public and private partnerships between government agencies that were working on the same problems, as well as universities, think tanks, uh, research institutions. Those continue. My last few months in India were a rather difficult period. The science summit went on, and you would not have guessed that the foreign ministry and I were having difficulties, given the warmth of relations between the two. 2000s, 2010s, both the intelligence services and the military. We had had almost no relationship with the Indian military until the mid-90s, and it started out with the civilian part of the militaries, and then moved to the uniformed services. I had a meeting with the formal chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He mentioned that the Indian commanders, the military commanders, rotate so frequently that it's hard to establish relationships between the military high command of the U.S. and India. I'm just fascinated by how those people-to-people -people connections and those kind of technicalities on both sides really shape the relationships. It was also true on the civilian side. In the U.S. government and the civil service, you tend to specialize in an agency. You know, maybe you're at Energy, maybe you're at DOD, maybe you're at the State Department as a civil servant, not a commissioned officer in either place. But those people stay and they will work themselves up the chain of command, maybe for 30, 35, 40 years. In India, you can be in the Defense Department and then you're the local official in the district and then you're in the food ministry and then you're someplace else. Not that the people weren't smart, I'm not saying that, but they just didn't have the long experience in dealing with their American counterparts. The acquisition systems in both countries are incredibly complicated, but the, the civil servants didn't tend to know what they were on the Indian side because they didn't have 30 years of working with it. Even though I was educated in India, our history lesson stopped in 1947. Only now in college am I learning about independent India. The reason I mention this is when you served, in India during your first tour from 1992 to 95. I don't really recognize India then. But fast forward to the 2010s when you serve as ambassador, India is much more familiar to me. I was wondering how India changed between your two tours. How did U.S. perceptions and relations also change? My history goes back further than that. My first trip to India was was en route to take up my posting in Nepal in 1980. So when I look, I'm looking at 80 then in the 92 to 95, and then coming back um, in 2012. So I sort of have three benchmarks to go by. One of the big ways 
was an enormous modernization of infrastructure, particularly the, the changes in communications. And when I went in 1980 and wanted to call my parents uh, to let them know I had made it as far as India, I had to make a reservation. The day before, I had to agree to be in my hotel room for six hours, and they would place the call during that time period. And it cost me more than my hotel room for three minutes. Now we have instantaneous communications via the, the net, the web, the telephones. They're cheap. Uh, we can send money back and forth. All of those things are extraordinarily easy. Huge changes, in, particularly in New Delhi and infrastructure, the Asia games that occurred in the, the 1980s. All of a sudden, we had flyovers, which are overpasses for Americans. You have huge influx into the, the large cities. Uh, New Delhi is estimated to be 15 million people. So huge mega cities in Mumbai and Calcutta, Bangalore, Hyderabad. So those are changes. In terms of the relationship, I pointed to one of, of this expansion of contact and cooperation in things that were under the radar, I would say. And those over the period had greatly expanded. I think when I went to India in, in the mid-90s, the country team, the representatives of all of the agencies and the State Department sections probably was about 18 or 20 people. When I went back, it was 32. We had the FAA. We had people from the Department of Homeland Security. We had enormous numbers of health professionals of different kinds that were working directly with the Indians. All of those were very, very valuable additions to the country team. In terms of the issues, particularly in the 90s, almost no conversation at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or in the Prime Minister's office went very long before we were dealing with nuclear non-proliferation issues. In 2008, the Bush administration and the Indians worked out a series of agreements that essentially took that issue off the table. A recognition that India had been a responsible proliferator, if you will. They had obviously tested, but they had not marketed their knowledge or their materials. There was a hope that the United States might be able to enter the civil nuclear industry in India. That hasn't been borne out, but the agreement continues and it's no longer a sticking point. You can talk about a whole range of other things. You know, maybe eventually you'll get to doing advocacy on behalf of General Electric that would still like to sell a, a reactor, but it's not a stopping point in the discussion. That's a huge help. That wider range of issues that we can talk about that our people are talking about. And then the fact that the nuclear issue is no longer a, a stopper. Moving to present day as Russia invaded Ukraine, India has had a position of neutrality at the UN in conversations with the United States. There's a continuity with previous Indian neutrality, but also there's a possibility for cooperation between US and India in combating the strategic adversary of China. And as someone who aspires to be a foreign service officer in the subcontinent, I was wondering what you saw the future of US-India relations to be and what advice you had to advance American national interest in the region? Just responding to the first part of what you were saying, I personally am very disappointed in the Indian votes at the UN and, and their unwillingness, particularly as a country that might be a target of aggression, having seen the Russian model of invading Ukraine. I, frankly, I think it's in their interest to be a bit more outspoken about it. They're taking 
enormous advantage, economic advantage of the cheap oil. I understand the national interest, the economic interest in doing that, but it also is undermining the international effort to try to deal with what is a clear violation of international practice and law since World War II. And I, I think it's unfortunate that India is on that side. I'm assuming it without knowing that part of our calculation, we've been pretty muted about it, is because we do desire their cooperation to work with other countries in the region, particularly Japan and Australia. There is a quad now that does both political uh, level discussions as well as military, particularly the navies have been cooperating for a number of years. That's important for another sector of America's foreign policy. And you, know, you don't get to just focus on one issue. You have to deal with the wide, the wider swath. And I will express some personal discomfort with the Indian position on Ukraine. And I had hoped that perhaps Foreign Minister Jai Shankar might be one of those who would work with trying to find a, at least a way to ceasefire. He personally has, I think, the stature to be able to do that if India wanted to pursue it. But I, I have not seen it happening. Maybe you would have an India-China effort, India-China-US effort. There's all kinds of possibilities. But frankly, based on what I'm reading in the New York Times, I'm not seeing that. Foreign Minister uh, Jay Shankar in a recent interview mentioned that there's a sense that European problems are everybody's problems and that India should choose its own national interest instead of trying to buy in to an international effort all the time. Any response to that kind of an Indian mentality, which is, this is hypocritical that they're asking India to kind of take part, and what a good American response to that would be. I would go back to the point I just made. They have an interest in this, of this not becoming the new norm. They live in a tough neighborhood. They have at least two neighbors that have invaded them over the past 75 years. If that becomes the norm, is their defense ministry or defense system is strong, but it didn't stop the earlier attacks, most of which are in the long past. But there are people that are looking at it, maybe that it's in their interest to, to take additional territory. And it may not be India right now, but it could be in the future. We're back to the non-aligned argument. And there's a, a point at which I think that you look at what, on both sides, where can we cooperate that that helps both countries, and maybe we just have to set this one aside and take a look at it, see whether there are opportunities to to find ways, you know, that where they could be a positive influence on the situation in, in Ukraine. If you go back into the 50s and 60s, there was not a, a recognition always that um, these were more global problems. It was focused on Berlin or whatever, and uh, it was part of the non-aligned mantra, if you will. Sometimes I feel like I'm listening to the 50s and 60s. <laughs> You've held many important and pressure-packed leadership roles at embassies, the State Department, and even containing the avian flu and Ebola outbreaks. I would be remiss if I didn't try to pick your brain on good advice for budding and seasoned professionals seeking to be good leaders, especially in the volatile world we live in now. And I want to start with, in 1988, when P Pakistani President Zia's plane went down, you drafted a cable about the Constitution's direction for the transfer of power. How did you master the art of writing diplomatic cables, especially in moments of crisis where information is incomplete and certainty is scarce? Let me just elaborate on that. One of the passengers on the plane with President Zia was my ambassador. 
along with our, our senior military representatives. So it was a, a personal tragedy as, as well as a, a, an international incident. You really had to say, okay, I got to sit down. I got to do this. Washington, what does Washington need to know? And I think that's certainly a question that anybody in the field, you can write all kinds of things. Basically, Washington is drowning in paper or now in computer tape. And they're looking for things that are brief, to the point, and relevant. And learning to write to that order and to do it in good with good grammar, <laughs> good spelling. It's my my sort of picking at the new generations that perhaps they weren't quite as schooled in that as I was back in Iowa. But I, I think certainly anybody that's aspiring to be in the Foreign Service, yes, there's a huge amount that's done by video conferencing now. Yes, there's a huge amount that's done on the telephone, on the secure phone lines. But the, the written product is probably going to be what influences policy. That night in Pakistan, I had two Pakistani men that worked very closely with me. And we went through the Constitution, what's supposed to happen. The Constitution was actually in abeyance. We didn't know what, but you know, we they helped me parse it out. I could put it into American English. And we also looked at what what were the other alternatives? Was America facing a another coup? Were they was the civilian president that was supposed to take over going to just be moved aside. And so you have to look at the alter alternatives. So Washington knows that you're not going to get all of them, but the Pakistanis came through on the constitution and had elections. And we actually were right that night, but it wasn't a clear thing. Everybody responds to crises different. And I think part of what you have to learn in the foreign service is I have a job to do and I, I will deal with my fear or my, my grief or whatever. I have to set it aside and do my job. I had a role model that night. The woman who took charge of the embassy had been the number two in the embassy for two weeks. She's currently our charge in India. It's Beth Jones. I will never forget, Beth is a very small woman. She came into a room where I'm not sure she knew the names of all of the Americans that were sitting at the table. She spread her fingers apart. She signaled at least to me, that she was as nervous and upset and scared and everything as I was. And then she started with her list of the things that needed to be done. When you have that kind of leadership, if you had somebody that fell apart at the table or didn't have a clue as to what direction we needed to do, I played that role uh, later on in Uganda. I was in Washington when the bombs went off in East Asia, in East Africa. And I walked my DCM through his list. And so, you know, you, you learn by example. Both Mike and I later talked about how we were shaking on the telephone, but we didn't tell each other that. <laughs> I think certainly there's not a test for it. You don't know how you're going to react. And sometimes you react better than you do other times. Unfortunately, we've had far too many examples of real heroism. I think of the man that was in charge of the embassy in Tanzania on the day of the bombs. You know, he wasn't the ambassador. He was the number two. And he got his people out. He got them safely out of a building that might have collapsed. And the ambassador in Kenya did the same. She was not in the building but and was injured herself, but took charge of her embassy. And uh, so there are... Lots of examples, and unfortunately. Um, but not all. 
diplomatic cables are usually that crisis oriented. You were mentioning to me a story about what the ambassador then called Nancy style section. I wonder if you can elaborate on that anecdote. As I mentioned, the, the Pakistanis had elections after the, the plane crash. Uh, Benazir Bhutto was elected. My ambassador, who replaced Ambassador Rafel, who was killed in the plane crash, he called it potted palm duty. He was invited to her installation in the parliament. And he said to me, you have done so much reporting on the election. I think you should represent us. So I went to the oath-taking and her initials, inaugural speech, came back and wrote an, a, a cable. And in it, I, I commented that President Zia's emphasis on wearing Pakistani national dress, a shalwar kameez or a sharwani, a jacket for the men, was gone. The men were dressed in Western suits. I got a note back on my cable saying, Nancy, is, this is not the style section. Two days later, then-Representative Solars, who was a, a big fan of South Asia and a frequent visitor, had been in India. He decided he wanted to be the first congressman to, to meet with Benazir, and she invited him to a dinner in his honor. He realized he had left his Sherwani, his jacket, in India. So there was a mad scramble to get his jacket from New Delhi to Islamabad at a time when the border wasn't particularly open. And we had all kinds of machinations to get it done. He got to the dinner and he's the only man in the room wearing a Sherwani because he had not read my style section cable. <laughs> you also served under both Democratic and Republican administrations. I was wondering if you had any advice in today's highly polarized time for how to stick to your principles while also not alienating yourself from either political party. I think it's become much more complicated. Um, I I served at a time when the the respect for the the career service was um, very strong in both parties, and there was a recognition that there were ethics rules that bound us, number one, and knowing those rules and being able to respect them yourself and not becoming partisan on your own is part of it. You also have to be prepared to resign. There are numer numerous people who have said, I cannot serve under these instructions. I can't serve under this policy. That's not new to the Foreign Service. That's happened throughout the history of the United States. But you have to be able to walk away from it. And, and the, the Foreign Service over the last few years has lost considerable talent as a result of that. It has a fairly liberal retirement system. There were a number of people who were eligible. And they made the decision to do that. And I think that's sort of the ultimate sacrifice. I had some situations where I opposed certain policies that didn't necessarily involve the country where I was posted, but I opposed it as a U.S. policy. You had to wait, am I making a better contribution? I might have gotten 15 seconds of fame as the American ambassador in country X by resigning over something that had nothing to do with me, or am I better off leading my team in a very difficult situation? You're constantly weighing that uh, Colin Powell talked about weighing it as Secretary of State. Um, and uh, I think, you know, that that's part of what senior leadership in these organizations, whether you're in the military, whether you're in the Foreign Service and the intelligence community, is knowing where your principles are and, and where's your where's your limit. You don't have to stay in. Nobody's got you chained to the chair. <laughs> My last question to you is, who is your favorite diplomat? I have a number, I think on the political side, Colin Powell, 
we had a, a joke that we were cousins. I was able to work very, very closely with him when I was in Pakistan. And I have the utmost admiration uh, for him. He was not, he was obviously a military man who came with enormous skills across the board, but also a real caring for the people that worked for him. And the other one would be Ambassador Rafel. And the, the reason the award for mentoring was named after him was because, well, he wasn't the only person in the State Department that had ever mentored anything. He was the one that that really emphasized it and really insisted that the people who worked with him for him were mentoring those who were junior to, to them. When he died, um, one of the staff members in Islamabad, we were, we were searching for a way to honor him and made this suggestion. Um, and it is now, particularly um, after Colin Powell came in with a much bigger emphasis on training, it is now a formal requirement of the deputy chief submission to be the chief mentor and supervise other mentors. That combination of, of both policy skill and caring for your people was very, very important to me. Ambassador Powell, I'm honored and thankful for your generosity with your time. I'm sure our Endisk fellows in the larger Notre Dame community learned a lot from your insight and remarkable life story. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.